0: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes, we also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row too hard? Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial.
1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to Let It Roll. Today features the return of Ed Ward to discuss his book, Michael Bloomfield, The Rise and Fall of an American Guitar Hero, which is coming out in paperback this summer. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Ed and I talk about the rise of Michael Bloomfield, his legend, his unique role as a Jewish blues man who learned at the feet of Muddy Waters and other African-American players in Chicago, his role in helping Bob Dylan birth folk rock, and his pioneering innovations with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the Let It Roll podcast. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joining us is our original guest, Ed Ward, who's here to talk about his book, Michael Bloomfield, The Rise and Fall of an American Guitar Hero. Ed, why does Michael Bloomfield matter? Well, I mean, he was actually
2: the first American, the first white American flashy blues guitarist. And um, although... uh, That gets into an even more complicated thing. It wasn't just that he was flashy. It was that he was playing real blues with an electric guitar in a time when blues was supposed to be played on acoustic guitars by frail old black men. He sort of challenged a lot of people's preconceptions.
1: And he was also the first rock and roll guitar virtuoso. Yeah, exactly. There were others who were completely
2: unknown at the time, particularly in Britain, which was not someplace one would go looking for blues. Um, Alexis Corner, of course, was running his uh, his various bands, uh, and and he was uh, he not that he was a great virtuoso, but he attracted people who were. Um, but Michael came up very naturally in a context where it never occurred to him that he was you know forging a whole new paradigm for the guitar
1: and and at the beginning of the book i mean there's definitely a mythical aspect of michael bloomfield because he's the proverbial white boy who can play the blues and not just like in his bedroom but as in on stage with muddy waters in south side of chicago right. And so you, you kind of capture that in the opening chapter when you when you bring up this comparison with Robert Johnson. And you end with this sentence, you know, Robert Johnson of the Crossroads myth, where he goes to the crossroads of Highway 61 and something else at midnight and waits for this mysterious dark figure to come tune his guitar, allegedly. this is, That's the legend. And it's a legend Bloomfield was familiar with, because that was about all we knew about Robert Johnson uh, in Bloomfield's Right. Era. What's the tie-in? I mean, you end with this line, Satan is irrelevant to our story, but Robert Johnson is not. Can you explain? Well, it's partially because of the myth.
2: At the time that Michael burst onto the scene, the national scene, really all that was known about Johnson was one LP that John Hammond at at Columbia Records had cobbled together. Um, We knew nothing about his life. We knew nothing about... Anything but these recordings and and so this myth of the crossroads and so forth you know was was very very heavy um turns out that actually was the um a legend attributed to Tommy Johnson, who was a far more famous guitarist in his own time, who um quickly drank himself to death but michael Michael was haunted in in the way that Robert Johnson was alleged to be. You know, he had his own demons um, and they eventually brought him down. But initially, he he was just he was just
1: a kid from the Chicago suburbs. And he was a pretty wealthy kid. Tell us about his background. Well,
2: his family was the Bloomfield Restaurant Supply. And I often tell people if you've ever been to a diner and there's a, a container of sugar with a dome top and a flap on it. That was invented by Bluefield. If you look at the bottom of those things, they've either got a, a B in a circle, or the words "Made in Chicago." And that's the Bluefield company. But they did far, far more than that. They did uh, all kinds of stainless steel stuff and and salt shakers and you know um, spoons and forks and stuff like that. It was a restaurant supply company, one of the most successful in the United States. Uh, and so his father, obviously wanted him to go into into that business. Instead, it was his younger brother who did.
1: And Michael was never a promising student or, or chip off the old block for his dad.
2: No, he, he really wasn't. All, he, he was really he, – he was a lot closer – To the model of his mother who, um, when she married uh, his father, was a successful entertainer um, doing dinner theater and and, uh, nightclub gigs. She was a singer. She was really a beautiful woman. And um, so, you know, she, she was used to being in front of the public. And when she saw that Michael was developing in this way, she really encouraged him, which didn't really please his father very much.
1: I mean, it's a classic conflict between the son and the father and michael was precocious musically like not only is he in yeah. chicago which might be the very best place to be an american music fan in that point in time but he's picking up the guitar at age 12.
2: right and like he said he was really terrible for a year and then he got good
1: uh, i think he I said never, he got never, great
2: forget him. what
1: i think the quote is he got great
2: Right, that's what he said, yeah. Which
1: is amazing. It's very typical of Bloomfield. I mean, he's this character who has enormous self-confidence on the one hand, and also a ton of neuroses and self-doubts.
2: Right. Well, it was possible for them to coexist. You know, pick up a guitar and say, I'm going to beat you, Michael, and that will turn him on to doing everything he can to shut you down. I mean, it's a classic thing that they do in the clubs in in uh, Chicago but um other things yeah he wasn't so wasn't so good at
1: (laughs) and so tell us a little bit about Michael's listening menu like the kind of stuff that he discovered in the 50s because it really I mean it sounds like he's like the hippest kid alive
2: yeah well he, he wasn't he wasn't alone that's that's the main thing um there were other kids who were doing this, and, and he eventually connected with them. But um, his, um, they had a maid. They had a colored maid, like all good Jewish families. Uh, and she took him to the club. She knew Muddy Waters. She knew uh, Big Bill Brunzi. She knew a lot of the blues singers. And she enjoyed it, and she thought, well, Michael, you're playing guitar. You should come see this stuff. So with permission from his parents, she took him down to these clubs, and he was electrified. Um, But it it was really true. It wasn't just Muddy Waters and and the Great Stars. There were tons of guitar players out there in Chicago, loads of them. It was no big thing. I imagine if he'd been a country fan, um, Chicago would also have been an excellent place to be because uh, as well as the Black migration, Black rural uh, people coming north, there were white rural people coming north. And um, so had he had that inclination and talent and exposure you know that would have been great the main thing was he he was like you know this young teenager who wanted to be tough he saw elvis he's like that's what i want to be man i want to be tough and and he saw blues as a way to be tough you know instead of beating other kids up with your fists you beat them up with the guitar you think you're good well watch
1: this and and that was good he had that outlet since apparently he wasn't very. He wasn't coordinated enough to beat anybody up with his fists, right. but, um, but you know, he, you you also talk about his radio diet, and in, in Chicago you could pick up quite a lot of radio stations. He was listening to Nashville. Not so many, not so many of the clear channels because there were a lot of
2: a lot of uh, local stations on the AM dial, and you can't have them too close together. So I don't think he, he, unlike, you know, Bob Dylan up in rural Minnesota, I, I don't actually think he was listening to the Clear Channels, you know, from, from Nashville and maybe XCRB um, in, in wherever that was in Mexico. He, he, um, he was paying attention to what was on the, the local stage. Now, a lot of them, uh, their blues programming was only late at night. Um, and, and during the day, they'd, they'd have jazz or something. You know, there were uh, radio stations that were marketing themselves toward black people. And and, um, the Chess Brothers, in fact, owned one. I can't remember the name of it. But, um, you know, the the radio stations and the the, uh, record companies, and um, they were all intertwined. And and, uh, so there was a lot of the stuff on the radio because these people who had moved north to make money had made money.
1: And so here they
2: were ready to advertise to.
1: And so he he's playing and he begins playing in the blues clubs really early, but he's also playing in rock and roll bands on the north side of Chicago and then sneak into the right, south side. Because that was the way that other, well, that was something that his other kids in the
2: school were doing. Um, and um, here he was just wanting to get out and perform. And, and uh, he, he he did the. Talent show at his high school and stuff like that, um, but it, it wasn't at all unusual. A lot of kids were forming bands around then. You know, they they heard, you know, Link Ray, um, they heard the Ventures, things like that, and um, they they were ready to go. You know, it was a way to get girls to look at you.
1: But then, when he's eighteen, he puts down the electric guitar entirely. Right. Well, the, the, the thing that was hipper than,
2: you know, trying to be the Ventures was folk music. And once again, a big source of girls. And um, it was also a, a, a thing that set you apart as a rebel. And, and he had that instinct all the time to, to rebel. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the folk thing was was. Coming up, he he was eventually going to go to the University of of Chicago, um, and and that was right in the middle of all of it. And it was a big, big folk scene. I mean, uh, coming up in the folk scene in New York, I heard about Chicago and what a radical uh, folk scene it it was. Among other things, they were looking at the local scene, at all the stuff that was in clubs.
1: And, and some of the seven clubs includes a man named Big Joe Williams, who Bloomfield spent a lot of time with and, and really encouraged. Did Bloomfield bring Big Joe into the folk audiences, or was Big Joe already playing for those folk audiences? What, what Michael did was he eventually
2: took over the booking of a, uh, of a club called the Fickle Pickle, and he also knew from his scholarship that there had been previously a huge blues scene in Chicago, but it was mostly acoustic. Um, this stuff was documented largely on Bluebird Records, which was a division of RCA, uh, which was intended to uh, provide hillbilly and Negro uh, hit records that weren't jazz. So there was a big Tampa Red um, and uh, Maceo Merriweather and um arthur crudup these people all recorded for for bluebird washboard sam there was another one and what they it was sort of like um blue note records was for jazz later you'd, you'd have a session and then you'd figure out who to put on the label for a given individual recording um it was they just recorded these people playing together and put out their records and sort of threw them against the wall. Now, the advantage of that was it was really cheap to make the records. The disadvantage was they all sounded alike. Um, so they weren't as successful as, as they wanted to be. They, they had a huge hit with Lil Green, Romance in the Dark. Um, but uh, past that, Bluebird was not all that successful. But all these musicians, they'd come up once again, they would come up with the uh, Northern migration of black Southerners and and they they wanted to play. So they they played in clubs and stuff where then eventually their audience aged out. And um, so these guys were just sitting around with all these skills and nowhere to exercise them. And Michael thought, aha, this is something the folkies are gonna like. And so he started booking these people into the fickle pickle. He did have a particular friendship with Big Joe who was a naturally gregarious guy with a horrible temper. And uh, so he and uh, some of his friends sort of started taking care of him.
1: Bloomfield and some of his friends started taking care of Big Joe. Yeah. Yeah, and you tell a classic tale of kind of how the friendship ends when Big Joe leads Bloomfield on sort of an expedition to East St. Louis that was supposed to be a music hunt but ends up Big Joe wanted to see his family.
2: It was a little too real for somebody who up to that point had idealized these guys as like, you know, great artists, lost masters. And here's this guy, you know, here here's Michael asleep on somebody's couch and here's this guy with with a pig snout on a on a meat fork holding up above his his uh, say, "Hey Michael, try some of this," you know, and there's like pork fat dripping on this poor Jewish kid's chest as as Big Joe is like drunk out of his mind and waving a a barbecued pig snout around. You know, that's, that was just a little too real. And and I think that's, you know, you have to sort of adjust your uh, expectations when something like that happens.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically Bloomfield jumped in his car and, uh, and went back to Chicago and left Big Joe, behind and and apparently they patched it up, or at least you know Bloomfield said that well, Big Joe comes with him. How about that big time we had in St Louis and that was the only thing that was said about the fight they had right but, because big joe didn't didn't he didn't have a plan
2: he he was famous for being unfindable he you know uh, uh, he signed up with the Bob Kester Delmark Records after a while, which was a Chicago label that. He was specialized in blues and jazz. And, you know, when Kester wanted to do a session with Big Joe, or, or somebody from a folk festival had called, it was it was a day's work trying to figure out if he was even in town.
1: He, he was just famous for wandering around. <laughs> and Bluefield, for a while, was happy to wander uh, in his footsteps. So, Bluefield's not the only white kid getting involved in the blues scene in Chicago at this time. I mean, Nick Gravanides. Paul Butterfield and a guy named Charlie Musselwhite are all doing the same thing. And Musselwhite's the first one that Bloomfield starts playing with in this thing they called The Group.
2: Right. Which was some weird attempt at a a rock band, but it did get to the ears of John Hammond. And uh, so some of them managed to cut some very flashy rock records that hammond declined to issue but he did have michael under contract he thought michael was a real talent
1: and and uh some of those demos have been released that that michael cut with hammond i think in what 63 or 64 they've been released on the box set that al cooper put together um from his hands to his heart to his head from his head to his heart to his hands uh, it's the name. Right. Of that. And, and they're actually, uh, you know, his singing is limited, but it's not bad stuff. Well, it's show offy though. And,
2: and that was something that he had trouble learning how to, I don't know, modulate or something. He 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 eventually it was great that he eventually wound up in a band because. It wasn't like Cream, where there was three guys and one of them was the guitarist. He was always there with um, Elvin Bishop as the second guitarist, and,
1: and Butterfield, that was, as a virtuoso harmonica player.
2: Well, yeah, but but in it was a band, and that was it was important that nobody dominate the band, including Paul.
1: Yeah, and so the Bloomfield. Is sort of drafted into the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. They they were not close. Bloomfield was scared of him, and right. Well, he was
2: he was even rougher than uh, Big Joe in some ways. I mean, he's a lawyer's son, but he would just like stomp into a club and go, "Let me play," and these black guys would go, "What?" But he was good enough that once he did, you know, they they had this attitude. Oh, let's put this novelty white boy up now, and then they heard him and went, well, he's not actually much of a novelty. He's he's good. Initially the way they, they felt about Michael, but then they realized that these people, these white guys, had a real feeling for what they were doing, what they were doing, the black people.
1: Yeah, and so they start to take him seriously, but Bloomfield doesn't end up in Butterfield's band until two guys from Elector Records, Joe Boyd and Paul Rothschild, come to Chicago and hear him jamming with butterfield.
2: Right. Well, they needed a piano player and Michael could play blues piano okay, something he'd picked up hanging out in the Fickle Pickle and and working with these Bluebird Bluebird recording artists, former Bluebird artists. A- and so that's where he was. They did a whole album with him on piano which Elektra rejected.
1: And that's the one that's that, been released as the Lost Butterfield Sessions, right? Right.
2: And uh, so all the lead guitar you hear on there is Alvin Bishop. Uh, it was easy enough to, to find a keyboard player, um, but not easy enough to find guitar players with the fluidity and the ability to blend in with the rest of the band that Michael had.
1: Yeah. There's an enormous leap, um, from those tracks to the first Paul Butterfield Blues album, but they spent almost 2 years trying to record the Butterfield band. They tried to record in the studio, then they recorded them live at the Cafe o Gogo. And uh do you have any insight into what the issues were that they they were never happy with what they were getting?
2: No, I really don't. I I mean, uh, I, I should one of these days ask Joe Boyd about that. They were well. I, we can hear that they weren't very good, and our our context is having heard what came later. Um, I, some of it may have been that they knew that there would be a lot of negative reaction from um, the um, the folkies because this did come out of the University of Chicago hoot night um scenes and and although very few of the members of the butterfield band were actual students it was because it was chicago you know they it had to be as good as chicago blues and it wasn't yet
1: yeah and and i mean in chicago to my understanding was sort of unique in the folk scenes in that they had direct access to electric blues played by authentic people like muddy waters and big joe Williams. and Helen Wolfe and others who had made the migration from Mississippi to Chicago and switched to electric instruments so that the kids in Chicago knew that electric blues was legit. Well, you know, you could go down the street and hear it. Big Joe by the way was not an
2: electric player. Yeah, yeah, that's my he, bad. He, he had a he had a pickup uh, on his nine-string guitar. But um that was just for playing in bars. It it he wasn't He wasn't doing the same sort of thing that Muddy was doing with sustained and stuff like that. He wasn't uh, doing the kind of stuff that Otis Rush and Magic Sam were doing uh, as far as the younger players. Um, It it was a completely different thing. But yeah, I mean, there was Sonny Boy Williamson and and, um, Little Walter for Harmonica. There was Muddy Waters um, and Howlin' Wolf for guitar, and also Wolf did some harmonica, you know, and that was just chess records. There were bunches of other labels out there um, and um, in Chicago, and they got played on the radio, and And actually some of those labels were so small that they never got past Chicago uh, or past the like number two or three blues station in Chicago, uh, so, record collectors go nuts for that but you know you could hear blues anytime you wanted to uh well uh, especially on weekends go down to the uh, maxwell street market which was a sort of open-air flea market with an emphasis on the fleas you could get anything down there usually broken and real junk but it was also a place where poor people shopped and there were you know players out there who um, playing electric blues in the street because they knew they could get tips from these people who were shopping at the at the Maxwell Street Market.
1: Yeah, so, so, you probably, know,
2: it's pretty hard to, you know, you drive down the street and there'd be a blues record shop blasting through one of those awful metal speaker horns into the street.
1: Yeah, and so Bloomfield and Butterfield didn't have any idea how heretical they were being by playing electric blues as white kids. No. You know, you get washboard Sam at the pickle pickle,
2: you could get howlin wolf at, at some club. You know, it was it was all one thing to them because it was that was their environment. You know, it it would be like I don't know, jazz musicians in New York.
1: Dime a dozen, most of them really good. And and speaking of musicians from New York Around this time, Bloomfield, or a little earlier, meets the New York musician, Bob Dylan, who comes to Chicago to play. And Bloomfield, you tell the story, Bloomfield's initial impression of him was he wasn't that good of a guitarist, and I'm going to go up there and cut him and show him how to play blues. What happened when they, when they met? Well, Dylan charmed him. He, he, he knew he wasn't a good
2: guitar player. I mean, good lord, He was from New York. He. <laughs> He was around Dave Van Rock, who was a really, really excellent finger-picking folk guitarist. Um, So Dylan knew about that that shortcoming, but they talked, they're they're both really smart guys, and they had this long conversation, and and Bloomfield walked away like, well, gee, you know, he's not as bad as I thought he was. he, He probably conceived him, coming from New York, you know, the The next big thing out of New York is this, you know, once again, wise-ass Jewish kid. Um, But of course, Michael's antenna were up. And of course, he wanted to go into battle with this guy. But the guy wasn't doing that. It It was like, you know, some sort of martial art where you just sidestep. And then once they got past that, they turned out to really like each other. You know, a good move for both of them.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, as it turns out, and so that they they end up hanging out for hours, and then when Bloomfield finally sees Dylan play, he's blown away at Dylan's ability to command attention. And um, I don't think uh, he and got that it
2: that... was about virtuosity.
1: Yeah, that it was about the the songs. You
2: could, you could be a, a fairly basic player, in purely musical terms, and still be damned effective.
1: Yes, and that's a sort of a lesson that Dylan imposes on Bloomfield when he gives him a call in 1965 and says, hey, I'm going to cut some records and I'd like you to play. But he says, yeah, uh, I don't want any of that B.B. King shit.
2: Yeah, well, that, that was what he said when he got when Michael got to the studio. But, I mean, Michael was just amazed that, you know, Dylan even knew how to find him. It wasn't that hard. I mean, Dylan's manager... Albert Grossman was from Chicago, from the folk scene, uh, ran folk clubs. So naturally, he knew how to get a hold of uh, Bloomfield. But, you know, Michael was pleased. Oh, look, somebody wants me to play on his record. And, you know, by that time, Dylan was a star. So this was like a real opportunity.
1: Yeah. and, And so Bloomfield, Dylan picks up Bloomfield at the train station in New York City and takes him out to Woodstock. And what's the scene like uh that Bloomfield discovers around Dylan at this point?
2: Well, there were a lot of hangers on, a lot a lot of odd people, but it was also uh Grossman who who was basically all there was to Woodstock at that point. Um th- there were people who had had moved up there from New York City, happy and arty trown being a, a great example of that. But um Basically, it was just a, a quiet place close enough to New York City that it was easy enough to get into the big city if you had to. But there was also a place where you could relax and work on stuff.
1: And and Dylan has surrounded himself like hangers-on. Bobby Newworth, it's hard to describe him as just a hanger-on. I mean, he was also basically Dylan's enforcer, I mean, verbally mostly. But they had built this incredibly intimidating uh machine Dylan and Newworth and were you know Bloomfield watches them shred uh Eric Oakes and David Blue with this approach.
2: My, wait, you you do you mean um,
1: Phil Oakes? Yeah, Phil Oakes, I'm sorry. And uh yeah, I was yeah, gonna introduce and, and Eric Anderson. A.K.A. David Cohen, yeah.
2: Yeah. I I mean there there was this this kind of one upsmanship that, that Michael really was not Impressed or, or um, involved with that was, you know, Dylan's trip. That wasn't for him.
1: Yeah, but he's unintimidated, and so over the course of three days, Dylan shows him the new material, which in 1965 nobody had heard anything like like a Rolling Stone. Right. And Bloomfield himself says he doesn't know didn't know what to make of it that he'd never heard anything like this. And then when he gets the brief not to play any of that BB King shit. But to play like Roger McGuinn, he's got to modify his style. He does end up on Tombstone Blues. I think he was told to
2: play like Roger McGuinn at all. Yeah. I think Dylan was just saying, I don't want standard pre-cut blues phrasing on here. I want virtuoso rock and roll guitar, which is why I picked you. And Michael went, okay, um, I can do that.
1: And he did. And he did. <laughs> and then, yeah. And and there's the legendary story of Al Cooper coming to the session as a guitarist, sees Bloomfield walk in from the rain with his guitar not in a case, just loose and wet, wipes his guitar off with a towel, plugs in, and Cooper just quietly puts his guitar away because he knows he's not going right. to play. And he then never moves heard in.
2: of this guy. I sure wasn't going to compete with him.
1: Yeah. And then he moves over to Oregon and ends up playing the lead instrument on the track. Yeah, he did. I mean, he didn't really know how to play the organ, but he, he knew
2: enough. He probably was down on the musician union as a uh, as a guitarist piano player. Cuz he, he did play the piano, but he he'd never really, you know, had much truck with a Hammond organ. But yeah, you well know, that's partially the mix, too. I mean,
1: yeah and and you know it's mysterious as to why Tom Wilson was fired after the recording of like a Rolling Stone. He'd been producing Dylan all the way through his career up to that point, and you know, captures the like a Rolling Stone take, but might not have even mixed it. Bob Johnson's brought in to finish the rest of the album, and you know, all we know is that Wilson at first didn't want to feature Cooper because he was like that's that guy's not an organ player, but Dylan insisted well. well.
2: There's a couple of things here. Uh, Wilson was a really prickly character. He was apparently quite difficult to get along with. Everybody wanted to because he was black, and he was. It was great, you know, to have this hip Negro producer at Columbia. Now, once you were a, a um, an official producer at Columbia, that you worked for the company, and um, so I don't know. There might have been something that went on at the session. But the, the really important thing, I think, was that there was a hiatus because they cut like a Rolling Stone and then everybody went to uh, Newport, Newport Folk Festival and, and doing all that. And when they finally reconvened in New York, Wilson was gone. He may have even been, I'm trying to remember what he did next. Because, oh, I know, he did Dion. He did that album on Dion that was only released last year. Really good folk rock record.
1: And then he went on to sign The Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa. um...
2: Well, he got fired from Columbia, I think, once the Dion album. They they didn't do anything with the Dion album. And and, uh, so, yeah, I mean, here was a hip Negro rock producer at Liberty. And and, uh, definitely Verve which was a jazz label, wanted in on the rock market because they'd missed it with uh, Ricky Nelson all those years ago. A- and, you know, rock music was with the Beatles and so forth. It was looking like something was going on there. So naturally, they they picked up Wilson, and Wilson, with his avant-garde taste, uh, turned out to be a pretty good match.
1: Yeah, but back to Dylan and Bloomfield. So this break to go to Newport, is that the weekend that the Butterfield Blues Band played there? Yeah. And Dylan Goes Electric. Or Dylan Goes Electric the next year, right? After the song's out? No. No, 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 no. It's the same no. year. And so people yeah. haven't even heard Like a Rolling Stone yet, but they've heard Subterranean they and Homesick Blues. And, they have. And...
2: They, they, put, they put that out immediately. Oh, ah, okay. And it went, it went to number one, which is why this whole myth that the Folkies hated the... Uh, thought of Dylan going electric. Well, some of them did. But
1: it was the number one song in the country. It wasn't like it was a huge surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they, they the Butterfield band goes to Newport. They play a Friday night show. Then Dylan arrives and starts calling people in to rehearse.
2: Right. But he, he the first person he calls is Bloomfield because he knows the Butterfield band's up there. And so Bloomfield was the guy who put the band together.
1: And he basically just took the Butterfield Blues Band team over there.
2: And Barry and so Goldberg.
1: Yes, his friend Barry Goldberg will show up. And Al Cooper shows up then. Yeah. Somehow for the show. But actually we should probably go back because the Friday night performance of the Butterfield Blues Band is also part of the legend of the Newport Festival because Alan Lomax gave them a pretty cutting introduction and Albert Grossman right. did not care for this. Well,
2: Lomax was was like revered by the authentic folkies. So there, this was the big divide in the in the folk music world in those days. Half of it was authenticity, which is your old black man in overalls playing an acoustic guitar, um, or you know a hillbilly playing a banjo and acoustic guitar, fiddle. That was that was authentic folk music there was commercial folk music, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, um, who were huge. So this was the divide. And somehow, because of the electric instruments, um, the Butterfield Band was perceived as being commercial, where, whereas what they were playing was so uncommercial, it was ridiculous. They were they were playing stuff that they heard in the streets, um, some of which was, written for them by people like Nick Gravanites. I mean, Born in Chicago, that fantastic lead track on their first album. You know, that's true. That's Nick's actual story. So, yeah, I mean, you weren't supposed to play electric blues. And I remember reading the um, letters column in Sing Out, which was the the rolling stone of, of authentic folkiedom. Uh, which also tried to, well, because of their political leanings, they they were very friendly to the singer-songwriters, including Bob Dylan. And uh, the the letters column, somebody wrote in and said, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but Chuck Berry is is a blues man. He plays an electric guitar, but he also plays Chicago blues, not just the pop music we know him for. And so this is something to think about and you know i was like 10 years old or something i thought yeah sure that makes sense but that was really a controversial statement I, I i should go back and find that letter somewhere because i'd like to know who wrote it um they were right and from there it was just a short step to the rolling
1: stones which was already going on in england but not and it was blowing away the commercial rock world in America, but the Folkies were not viewing that stuff as authentic at all or of anything.
2: It wasn't you know, even blowing away the, the uh, I mean, I guess, I'm trying to remember what their first hit here
1: well, was. Well, the Stones had multiple top 20 hits by this point in 1965. They went number nine with no. um, The Last no. Time. Yeah, they went, no. No, The Last Time went to number nine on the American pop charts in nineteen sixty five. And uh, Heart of Stone had been in the top twenty Time is on my side was twenty four, I wanna say.
2: Hang on, hang on. I've got the big book of charts.
1: You don't want to argue with me about stones trivia that Okay, you're you're right.
2: Yeah. You're yep. right.
1: And
2: satisfaction was even
1: Yeah, that was the hit uh, of the really summer, popular. so
2: Right. It was in June.
1: Yeah, and that was the song of the year. So, um, right. Because it was but, a protest
2: song, it was a rock and roll song.
1: Yeah, but the Folkies were not, they viewed that as the pop world, right? They that wasn't of concern to them. That the Stones weren't showing up yeah, at Newport. No,
2: they weren't. And if they had been, they would have been beaten
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> but Butterfield is showing up. And Now, was their album out yet, or it had just been cut?
2: I I think it had just.
1: Oh no! It it was it was coming. They cut
2: that after Newport. The chronology drove me nuts doing this book, Um, and I got it wrong the first time. It it was like a Rolling Stone Newport, then back to New York to um, do the rest of Highway sixty one, and then get the Butter Band together for the Butters with um bloomfield album i mean i don't think anybody slept for about four or five weeks in there but it was all done and i'm i'm fairly sure that the uh that the butterfield album came out in the early fall it wasn't you know back in those days you only had a couple of tracks and mixing wasn't a, a really big deal you had to get it right the first time so um it was a really huge period of creativity on those lines
1: yeah and 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 bloomfield has the opportunity to stay with dylan and he encourages the other players on the gig to stay with dylan and is telling him how big he's going to be but he doesn't want any part of that
2: no he he was he knew very well that he was a blues player and he'd also had enough history with the butter band that he saw that as, as something he could do with some success. It's something he could tour with, people he could get along with. I'm pretty sure he didn't want to be hanging around a lot with the likes of, of Victor Maimondas and and uh, uh Bobby, Bobby Newworth. Yeah. I mean, those were the the two, you know, enforcers in the Dylan camp and there was politics and stuff in the Dylan's camp. Who was who was cool, who wasn't cool. You know, the Butter Band was just a bunch of guys loading shit into a van and driving around and playing at colleges where people were actually very interested in what they were doing.
1: Yeah, and you talk about, the, uh, is there an early version of uh, Born in Chicago that was put on the compilation album that sold 200,000 copies? Yeah. that's That's a big splash in the folk scene. I mean, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, the uh, blues pro- was it the Blues Project, the Electric Blues Pro or, or was it the
1: um I think the Blues Project's on the album and so there's one that's got yeah. early Love and Spoonful as well. Oh okay, so so that's the uh I can
2: to remember the name of the thing. It, it's a compilation. Uh it also has um the powerhouse, which was an early Clapton thing.
1: There's there's a whole nexus. And I came across an interview the other day I hadn't realized this. And I was going to throw this at you as a curveball, but did you realize that Dylan had actually rehearsed with Eric Clapton and Males Bluesbreakers a few months before he cut "Like a Rolling Stone"? Or it might have just been weeks.
2: I've never heard that story.
1: I, I found it online. Where would you have done that? He did it in England when he was on the tour that was filmed for "Don't Look Back." And he Got he it. he okay. he called them down and. And, you know, whatever they were working on, it didn't it didn't produce anything. But that sort of made me wonder if that wasn't the source of Don't Do Any B.B. B. King shit, if he hadn't tried to play with Eric Clapton and realized that
2: uh, pure... Good, good
1: question. Blues I've, guitar I've wasn't... never
2: heard this story before. And I, I do know that he was hanging out with Alan Price from The Animals because there's a, uh, an outtake reel from Don't Look Back that has a really hilarious scene of alan price taking dylan to shop for clothes and, <laughs> and in the middle of this, uh, a woman and her young daughter enter this clothing shop and they're horrified horrified i mean if godzilla had been standing in front of them they couldn't have been more horrified it's really worth watching huh yeah so yeah may
1: twelfth, 1965 in london was when um they tried to cut a session with the blues breakers, but and I want to I want to talk about the Bluesbreakers a little bit because Clapton has had some records out with the Yardbirds. He was on the Five Live Yardbirds album. He was on a few flop singles, "Good Morning Little Schoolgirl." He was on their one hit "For Your Love," but then quit immediately, and that's all Americans knew about Eric Clapton—basically nothing because Jeff Beck replaced him, as far as Americans do. But he's playing with John now, Mayall.
2: Actually, nobody knew if it wasn't John Paul George or Ringo or the Five Rolling Stones. Nobody knew the name of anybody in these bands. There was Herman, and who knows who the Hermits were. There was Dave Clark, and who knew who the other four guys were.
1: They just didn't know. But nobody in America knew about Eric Clapton. Somehow Dylan did, I guess, from being in England and getting hip, but... It might have been Alan Price who told him. Yeah, it could have very well have been. And, uh, and of course, he was hanging out with Brian Jones and all kinds of other English rock stars at the time, although they were smart enough to stay away from the cameras when Pinnerbaker was around making the dock. But Clapton and Bloomfield have pretty parallel careers for a while. Bloomfield gets the big jump by being on Like a Rolling Stone, but then the first Paul Butterfield album comes out in the fall of 65. And then spring of 66, the Males Blues Breakers album comes out. And did that make much of a splash in America at the time?
2: No, it didn't. I mean, once again enlightened folkies like myself (laughs) bought it um, because, well, for one thing, I'd heard this Eric Clapton of the Powerhouse track where he's playing a Freddie King song and and it was an instrumental. And I thought that was just great. Um, But I don't think most people were aware of that because um, even on a low price sampler, once again, people weren't so much Tracking the names of the musicians as um, they were the names of the, the groups, and since the Powerhouse wasn't really a group and, and never put out any more records, you know that that was what Clapton was doing after he left Mail. He didn't stay with Mail very long either. Mail was apparently very hard to get along with.
1: Yeah, a number of guitarists churned through, but anyway, but back to Bloomfield. I mean. There for a minute, from 65 all the way through the through his run with the Butterfield band, Bloomfield is absolutely on the cutting edge of rock and roll. I mean, he's playing lead guitar on the anthem of rock music, like Rolling Stone. I mean, this, this was the compass point for where is rock going to go? Well, here's where it's going to go. And then, right. you know, the first Butterfield album is very solid blues, electric blues played by an integrated band but led by white kids and then they followed up in late 66 with east west which is just a quantum leap musically from what he'd been doing before and you tell the story of how lsd was involved in the insights that allowed bloomfield to make that big leap bloomfield
2: and uh and bishop they they were you know they were pretty tight i mean They couldn't help but be competitors on stage, but they were both exploring all these new dimensions that were out there, and and, uh, they had both taken acid and and listened to some Indian music um, that Michael had really gotten into, and they both got it. They understood how the music works, which is pretty counterintuitive for Western ears. They were all listening to all kinds of stuff. And, and Gravenites had written an instrumental called About Time. I'm, I have no idea what that sounded like or even what he thought he was doing. Um, it's something somebody ought to ask him one of these days. A- and um, they took that and and they played around with these ideas that they'd gotten from the Indian music. And the next thing you know, it was East West. But they also did um, the Cannibal Adderley uh, work song on the other side of the record. And that's just as important because it's a, a long track and it isn't blues all that much. Although the head is sort of blues, but the improvisations that they do take it all over the place. I really wonder what Cannon and Nat thought about that one, if they even heard it. Um, it was a real interesting approach to a song that could have been a complete disaster uh, in other hands. And so it was very clear that this band, if they hit a hit, you know, which is what Mary Mary is doing on there. Yeah, and that's um, written by
1: Michael Nesmith of the Monkees.
2: Well, Michael was a, a songwriter long before he joined the Monkees. His who was his. Uh, He'd be Michael Sincere or something like that, Michael Darling. I forget, was the name he was using. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Electra wanted a hit because they didn't, they didn't know from album sales. And in fact, giant album sales were, if you weren't the Beatles, they were a thing of the future at that point. So they wanted a hit, and what the Butter Band wanted to do was stretch out, play work song, you know. But these things were huge hits when they were on tour and, um, you know, there, there are several, um, recordings of, uh, East West played live, uh, from, uh, uh, Mark Nathalon's
1: archives,
2: but they were, you know, they were big, they went over big live.
1: Especially in San and, Francisco. Uh,
2: well, yeah, San, San Francisco, they thought they had the, um, market cornered on what you could do with LSD and an electric guitar. And it was amazing. When when um the uh, Fillmore Auditorium opened up and they booked the Butterfield band, the Butters came out there and they just laughed. I mean Butterfields ha- made some crack about what did these guys think they were doing? And they really they weren't very proficient. There were only a couple of guitarists. I mean Jerry Garcia and John Cipollina were probably the only two real guitar players out there. Certainly James Gurley from the uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company wasn't no. the virtuoso that he thought he was. And so these guys, you know, the blues players get out there and go, what, there's no structure to this stuff? They can't play? Man, we're going to wipe the floor with them. And they did. People came to the, came to the, uh, the shows at, at the Fillmore and went, wow,
1: where did this come from? Gave people something to think about and a direction to follow. I mean, you could argue that the whole Grateful Dead modal jam section comes from East West. I mean, that I'm sure that was part of it. But once
2: again, LSD plays something of a role in the history of Grateful (laughs) Dead. And um, Garcia was also coming from a bluegrass uh, background because that was the first thing he did was this uh this bluegrass thing and then then it turned into jug band music and then it turned into the warlocks but there had already been the acid test um down there in Palo Alto and, and also in um in San Francisco so yeah i don't think we can we can blame the butters for um, what they did with the
1: <laughs> you can't blame them for bread. the whole thing but nonetheless in in nineteen sixty six Michael Bloomfield is absolutely on the cutting edge of rock and roll I mean, and
0: yeah. you know oh, the yeah. two
1: albums with Butterfield were both um excellent accomplishments i I still have a hard time you know coming to them after the blues rock revolution that they triggered you know it was kind of hard to see what was so special about him, you know as a kid coming back into it from the eighties east west was obviously right. unique but The Butterfield, the first Butterfield album, I think it's hard to recapture the impact it had on the scene in '65. But it's
2: one of those seismic events. You know, you you play it and you're not the same afterwards. I I I can remember hearing it for the first time and going, "Oh boy, that's going to change things." And then I went to see them at I believe Carnegie Hall, and it was like, "Okay, this is it." There's really something here. I I, I, could, I thought it was really important that Michael had his back to the audience the whole time, crouching down and and playing next to his amplifier. That was a, about the first thing I asked him about when I finally met him. He said, You know, why did you do that? He said, Oh my amp was all fucked up it was the only way I could get it to sound right. <laughs> oh. So that's not a mystery of the electric guitar? Oh, jeez, I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so from sixty five to the through nineteen sixty six bloomfield is absolutely at the cutting edge of rock and roll I mean you know playing on the big folk rock single sixty five and then leading the first blues rock band in america white blues rock band in america, and then inventing rock and rock i mean you know east west is up there with with eight miles high and and any other, you know, Yarbrough Shapes thing. one of the most innovative things to happen in 1966. And the future psychedelic scene is all ears. But then in early 67, he suddenly quits the Butterfield Blues Band. What's the story with that? Insomnia. He had a terrible problem
2: when he was on tour getting to sleep. And there would be days that went by where he slept not a minute. And it was making him nuts. So... yeah, you know, it was also the fact that
1: as good as they were, they weren't getting paid like good,
2: <laughs> good musicians.
1: Yeah, they they yeah. hadn't had a single, and they weren't playing. the were, the the Fillmore scene, Fillmore was ahead of its time a little bit, and the bigger yeah, the big ball scene. Yeah, nobody had to happen. there was making money. The only people who were making money were
2: the Grateful Dead because they went out and toured relentlessly. But you know the none of the quote unquote stars uh from the from the original san francisco scene were making anything you know they they didn't have record labels they didn't have record contracts I mean they didn't have hit records because they tended to play for seven or eight minutes per tune and electra wasn't making any money off of butterfield they they had judy collins to uh bring in the the dough. And they thought maybe that would be the way to go. You know,
1: folk rock up to this point though, even with quitting Butterfield, he's still keeping pace with Eric Clapton, maybe a little bit behind because Clapton quit Mayo and then forms the cream, which hasn't hit America yet. Uh, in early 67 and Butterfield conceives of, he has a very big vision for his next band. And, and let's tease that a little bit because we're going to talk about that on the next episode. What was his vision for an American music band. Bloomfield? Yeah, Bloomfield. 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 Bloomfield, yeah. Well, Bloom,
2: Michael had never been a blues purist, obviously, or else he couldn't have obeyed Dylan on the, um, like a Rolling Stone session. He had also listened to country music. He listened to folk music. He listened to a lot of stuff. And he had this idea of a band that would encompass all American music, an American music band and um, he thought that would be what he wanted to do he wanted to add horns he he wanted to have uh, a couple of vocalists he he just had this vision of, of a band that would synthesize american music uh in a way that the public would respond to so putting that together was not easy but The original guy he went to was his old pal, Nick Gravenides. And um, fortunately, Nick has always been a really solid guy. And uh, so he helped put this band together. And uh, that became the uh, electric flag.
1: And we'll talk about that and the Super Sessions with Al Cooper and the long, sad decline and fall of Michael Bloomfield in part two of our series about Ed's book on Michael Bloomfield, which comes out in paperback this summer, summer of 2018, July of 2018. So thank you, Ed. And and we'll be back very soon to talk about the rest of Michael Bloomfield's life. This is Nate Wilcox (laughs) for Let It Roll. Thanks for listening. Next week, Ed and I will finish the story of Michael Bloomfield, covering his dream band, his biggest commercial successes with Al Cooper, and his decline and fall. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Ed Ward's Michael Bloomfield, The Rise and Fall of an American Guitar Hero, is available from Chicago Review Press, wherever fine books are sold. 92%
0: of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes, we also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? too hard not with form assist it actually teaches you how to row so it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a season pro peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals 92 percent stick with it so can you try the peloton row risk-free with a 30-day home trial new members only not available in remote locations see additional terms at onepelotoncom home dash trial
3: it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football